0: whatever computer, you or Wi-Fi, or or 5G, or whatever you're putting around, somebody's got to go along and link that all up to wiring. Somebody's got to build the towers. Somebody's got to go and install those things. Somebody's got to maintain them. Somebody, somebody, somebody. And those are all the artists.
1: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Expedition Business, where we discuss the highs and lows of our entrepreneurs and what can be done to take entrepreneurship to the next level. My name is Christelle Rosley-Fenton. I have a pleasure of talking to Richard Lewis, all the way from Polru in the Free State today. Welcome to Expedition Business, Richard.
0: My sincere thanks, Christelle. I'm looking forward to it, and hello to all your listeners.
1: Fantastic. Richard, you are a man of many talents, interests and accomplishments. But before we get to our conversation today, I would like to remind our listeners to please subscribe, follow and whatever you need to do on your favorite podcast channel to ensure that you do not miss out on any of our exciting entrepreneurship discussions. But back to Richard, who is, as I said, a man of many talents and interests. He is, amongst others, the owner of Richard Lewis Strategic Services. He is a four-time National Environmental Awardee and was for many years the Chairman of the Wildlife and Environment Society of South Africa and is still the Ambassador for WESA. He is the committee member of a Regional Centre of Expertise for the United Nations University something that I feel very close to my heart is he is the CEO of Artisan Training Foundation. Richard, did I miss out on
0: anything? No, I think you've covered most of it. I've got got many hats that I sometimes wear, but uh, you've covered the main hats, surely.
1: Fantastic. Richard, you come from a highly academical background. How did you end up in the artisan industry?
0: you know from from a young from a very young age um even you know when when I started at my church as a youngster etc i always loved doing um things to help people or to give them hope or to lift them up it was it was just something that came always has come very naturally to me to focus outwards and to worry about other people's situations. And so, uh, for a long time, and I think many South Africans have been concerned about the plight of unemployed youth, um, especially in our country. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, 15 15 years ago, um, I've I've had a very good friendship with um, the CEO of the Artisan Training Institute, um, Dr. Sean Jones. Yes. We actually went to the same school together. Mm-hmm. we've been friends for over forty years and i was um he was doing some consulting for me um years ago and then he got involved with um the um Ikaya fundisa training academy where the owner was um wrapping things up to sell it. Mm-hmm. and um, and Sean wanted to buy buy it, but he needed a partner, and I put him together with his Today partner. They've been together for 15 years, Mandisa Sawazi, yes. and they're the two shareholders of the Artisan Training Institute, and um, then they retained my services to be part of that team to, to grow it, and we've had um, 15 absolutely incredible years of um, excitement, of adventure, of um, of of friendship, the three of us, and helped by tremendous people. But what's really made it so spectacularly successful, because it is, I believe, the leading privately owned technical training centre in the country, and very possibly um, in sub-Saharan Africa. In fact, probably. Wow. And we have campuses in. In uh, in Rudiput and and Kimberley and down at Port Shipsen. and mm-hmm. we started off with the you know the group of about 15 people, and um, a very small uh, revenue. And today it's um, a multi-million rand organisation, about 140 employees around the country. We're in Madagascar, we're in DRC, we've got a presence in Ghana. Um, we're opening up more centres in the country. And I headed up uh, their HR and their strategy, um, and it was great. And then we had a donor-funded program, which grew very, very, you know, where, where people wanted to fund children to come and be trained as artisans. And um, I must say that the, the Institute's trained over 30,000 um, artisans now That's in its history, incredible. which is like one hell of a contribution to the country. Wow. And... Um, and so this donor-funded program started, and we decided to create a foundation. And I was made the CEO of the Artisan Training Foundation. And we've now done um, uh, about 1,700 um, fully funded um, youth from school school leaving, getting assessed, are they suitable, receiving the three years training plus workplace experience, and then um, qualifying as artisans and going out to make the difference in their lives and the lives that are involved with them, their families and their communities to such a level that they could never have believed that ever possible. Because a good artisan is sought after if you train in the trades that's in demand Mm. and they make good money and they get employed often far quicker than many university graduates Mm -hmm. gone and studied something that's not really of worth in the country. And, And it's a nice to sort of have but industry and commerce doesn't really need them, no. and then they end up waitering at pizza parlors or wherever it is, and um, and whereas our kids get out there into the permanent quality employment, and mm. that's that's mm. fantastic. So when you say why, I'm really happy about it because my natural passion of helping people links so clearly to the mission of our foundation, which is we believe in a world of youth with sustainable livelihoods. Wow. And it's fantastic to be working where that is the primary outcome of everything that the Artisan Training Foundation and the Artisan Training Institute are involved in wow. and that is why that is why I'm so motivated about it and got into it and and enjoy it so much.
1: Richard, something that I'm wondering about is it's a secret that we tend to look down on artisans, even when we are aware of their importance. Where do you think the stigma came from? And do you see a future where people will realize that there's, in general, much better prospects, financially, et cetera, et cetera, than, as you said, um, with the academic qualifications? Do you think people yes. would realize that?
0: Well, you know, I re- I realised it. I mean, I had first-hand knowledge when I was at school because um, it was so clear to me there that you know just the general ambiance um, uh, and, and of of your life at school was in those days um, that if you're if you're clever and you're sharp and this and that you're going to be going to university, and if you're a bit doff for want of a you know for the words that used to used the Dorfies used to go to the technical classes mm-hmm. and it was, it was ingrained in us in the whole school system. And I think it, I'm not sure where it came from, but you know, I think certainly in the Anglo-Saxon world of, um, you know, um, and, and the British Commonwealth, etc. I think that was the case that um, the, you know, that you, you went to university, otherwise you'd quite make it. Mm. And the, the thing for me was when I finished my law studies at Natal University, I then was, uh, and then I went to the Chamber of Industries. Thereafter, I was um, given a position as a lecturer in um, international law at the Euro Academy in Cologne, in, in, it was West Germany then. Mm-hmm. And I spent several years there working, and I studied further in business administration, and then after that, in jurisprudence. And living in Germany for a couple of years, it became very evident to me that the 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 real winners there, the, the, the people that were making the money, that had the lifestyles. You know, when you're young, it's all about lifestyle and the quality of that lifestyle. They were the electricians and the auto electricians and the plumbers and people like that. Those were the high earners. Those mm-hmm. were the people that had beautiful homes. And if you think about it, Germany and Japan have had such consistent um, economies of growth, and they've built their economies primarily on the exact opposite of what the Anglo-Saxon economies did. Mm. They've been primarily focused on the importance um, of technical skills over and above that of academic. So they've got a far better balance in terms of if you're technically inclined, you go and you study technical skills. If you're academically inclined, you go and study academically. Mm -hmm. But there's absolutely no um, perception that the one is better than the other. Whereas we have battled with this perception that the one is better than the other. And I'm very happy to say that um, Sean Jones of the Institute and I, we've We've written a lot of articles um, and, and put it out there and, and been part of the wave of creating an awareness that technical skills in South Africa really are of great importance mm. and there is a tremendous livelihood to be obtained if you make it your career. And um, I, think, I think the message is definitely getting through because more and more, we're seeing the formal um, uh, education um, institutions and the Department of Education and that beginning to realize that funding and focus needs to go towards technical skills. It's ridiculous that in this country we have so many projects that are done where you have, they bring in teams of, the, of, of Chinese. Uh, um, artisans or Korean artisans or or Cuban artisans or people from from the West or wherever to come and do this work when we have so many people that are unemployed and and I can understand them wanting to do their projects with quality artisans because I can tell you that um, our country is not great with many of its public TV um, colleges is not great on turning out quality artisans. People might come out with bits of paper that say they're an artisan, but yes. they're not necessarily all that competent. And that, I think, is where um, ATI has done so well. Uh, Crystal has been Our non-negotiable is they qualify as not only qualified, but as competent. Mm-hmm. And this is why companies are coming to us to get quality artisans because you dare not have a shoddy artisan and your project um, back at your company and then they bugger things up. So, mm. But it, it is ludicrous that we import these skills so often for these projects when our kids or our qualified artisans should be doing them. And we're happy to be in the space of getting talented youth to consider becoming an artisan and then to ensure that they become a quality, qualified artisan.
1: I assume the challenge is to also for the kids to realize what amazing future they do have if they do become artisans on the one hand to change their minds, but then also to change um, big businesses minds that you guys need funding to get these um, children through the artisan school.
0: Yes, so um, look, career guidance is definitely starting to highlight this, and we are very involved in that. We're always happy. We've got resources that go around to the schools. We're also um, uh, we've also got an online career guidance uh, tool, um, whereby they can see are they even suited towards techn- um, engineering, trade, technical skills, and because the, the the tool shows them whether they should be considering it or not. But if they are suited, it then goes on to show them which trade best suits them. Um, And we're growing this presence all the time. And we campaign with fellow funders um, to, to create this awareness at schools. And it's a space that we're growing. And there's definitely growing interest around it. And there's a lot of interest when they realize that this is, if they train in a trade that is in demand by industry and they do well, then their chances of being placed with a, um, w- with a permanent employer is great. And I might very proudly be able to say that I believe, I'm going to be conservative and say 97% of those that graduate from us are, all, are, are generally kept on by the employer that gave them their learnership workplace experience. Mm-hmm. Because by the time they're finished with them, they know all about the company, they know its culture, they know how to work on its tools, and they've become almost part and parcel of that organization. And that organization has had 18 months in which to suss out, do they want this person as part of their their workforce when they qualify as an artisan? And mm-hmm. as I say, I'm very proud to say that over 90%, 97% of them are offered and remain as permanent employees once they've qualified as artisans. Wow. And yeah. yeah, so it's changing, and we're going to continue changing on that. The other thing is on that point, Cristal, because it's a valid point, and yes, um, we, we would urge uh, more organizations to consider their CSI spend and their BEE spend um, in funding youngsters to become artisans or hosting youngsters with learnerships. Whereby they're trained, you know, at a place like ATI, but they do their workplace experience with them, because mm-hmm. of the very reason, of the very reason I've just given you, if mm-hmm. they're looking for top-notch um, people that they can suss out for a long time, to see whether they want them as part of their team one day, then why not fund that youth to come to us to be trained, host them back at their that funder's workplace. Um, for their experience, and when they finish, offer them permanent employment. It's the most beautiful circle of we fund, and then one day we get back qualified artisan who's already part and parcel of our mm. company. Mm. Just makes sense. Whereas a lot of people just cop out, and they, at the last minute they get hold of an agency. Where can we? Where can we use our CSI spend or whatever it is? And then mm-hmm. it goes to a bit of leadership training here, or a little bit of whatever training there and whatever it is and there's no valid there's so few valid outcomes that come from those things and um, whereas this has got a real return on investment for that CSI spend
1: without a doubt Richard something that I just want to get to obviously expedition business its main focus is entrepreneurship is apart from getting the opportunity to find employment, full-time employment, there's also major, major opportunities to go into business for yourself. Do you guys give guidance on that side to your artisans in training?
0: Uh, You know, uh, until very recently, we didn't because our core business was, um, uh, the ATI's core business has traditionally been corporates, send um, their staff there and they study with us, and then they eventually qualify as artisans. And of course, they just stay working with their company. But um, the beauty of, the, of, of what we do is there, I call it the three E's. There's, there's sort of three exits uh, for a person who comes, for instance, to study as an artisan. When they qualify, they can remain as an artisan, as an employee of a company. Mm-hmm. Number two, they can go out qualified and they can become, you know, sort of what we call a, a bucky contractor or whatever it is. Qualified artisan goes out, becomes um, an entrepreneur, ends up employing two or three people that are artisans assistants and they go about, um, you know, doing electrical work or auto-electrical work, or welding or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is that they use that qualification um as credits towards uh, their, you know, going on to do a BSc or a B.Tech, where they they can eventually emerge as an engineer. Mm. So so that's the three E's, engineer, entrepreneur or employee. And um, funders have now, through the foundation, we have um, listened to the interest of funders, um, and I fully concur with it, as to how we can start producing more artisans that consider the entrepreneurial route, mm. so we are we are coincidentally um, right in them and at the moment involved in just putting together the final stages of a packaged offering whereby it's going to be not only the artisan training, but there's going to be entrepreneurial and business skills simultaneously mm-hmm. provided so that portion of the day, they're going to be doing those courses uh, for us to encourage uh, more of them to become entrepreneurs uh, because they they sorely need it especially especially in their communities the the sort of more rural communities or the low income communities they they do well there um if they if they know how to get their they act together as a as a contractor mm-hmm. um but you have to teach them you know how to open a bank account how to watch your finances how to market yourself, how to have a presence um, on social media, etc. And those are the things that we're now putting together. And we're probably going to have that running, um, I'd imagine, within the next six weeks.
1: Okay, that's super, super exciting. It almost reminds me, I mentioned in the beginning that the whole Artisan Foundation is very close to my heart. But what you're talking about here reminds me very much of my late father who started his career as a bricklayer and I know you guys don't offer bricklayers training as artisans, but he started as a bricklayer and ended up being in a much, much better space than most of his peers. But he realized from a very early age that if he doesn't want to stay a bricklayer, he needs to add a variety of soft skills and And that's basically what he did. He used his bricklayer training and worked himself up from there into a fully fledged property development company. And yeah, but without the soft skills, without the continuous support in building your entrepreneurial skills, you are pretty much always going to stay a bucky operator. But you guys are addressing that right at the moment and about to launch it.
0: Yes, no, we're quite excited about it. Um, and and it's it's partially because it's an awareness that we've had, but in particularly in my instance, um, as CEO of the foundation, uh, because I'm engaging with funders all the time. Um, it's something that there's, there's more and more and more talk of how we can broaden their, their education with these peripheral um, add-ons. Mm. So, so they, they're even better informed as to whether they should or shouldn't, you know, should they, should they take up a job or should they give it a bash if they've got an opportunity. And then we, we also sort of, uh, we have relationships such as the Standard Bank and that whereby they can get additional information and even funding or loan opportunities through them um, because they've proven themselves during the time that they've been studying and and, and qualified, you know, it's, it, to, to to eventually qualify with your trade test, you've shown discipline and you've shown commitment and um, perseverance, and so it's not a bad bet for a bank to say, well, listen, we'll help you get going, uh, and then um, we work out how you start paying us back after a while, and and I think that's that's the the model we're going to you know, we're going to be following along.
1: Well, sounds super, super exciting. Richard, there's also, I believe, companies like Soltech are starting to offer training uh, in the IT infrastructure and also see that as artisan training. Do you see the whole artisan spectrum changing over time to include areas such as IT?
0: Well, you know, it's inevitable. Uh, you know, we're already seeing how it's coming through with, with, with our instrumentation courses, etc., And, at, you know, robotics and that will at some stage be part of it. We have to date concentrated on uh, the core engineering trade, uh, legacy trades. Um, the great thing about that is that no matter which way you look at it, they will always be needed. There's always somebody that needs to do instrumentation or, or knows how to do rigging. There's always somebody who needs to 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 be a mechanic or to be an auto electrician or to be an electrician. There's always somebody who's got to build the things or to wire the things or to put things together, or to fix things or to maintain things. And so artisans, uh, the, the main trades are going to continue. Uh, for you know, as far as we can see, uh, the content of the courses might change. But they will continue, but the advent of um of of digital and i t. and robotics and that is going to also be inevitable, and we are continually um working to remain abreast of these things um and I would imagine absolutely there will be there will be a time where there's a lot more integration or necessity because the one will will revolve around the other. But not to the exclusion of the other. Um, I, I did. You know, the the world's had such a a hell of a push um, towards getting everybody to be software engineers and developers and and app creators, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's been completely oversubscribed. It's been that they've flooded the international market now. So many people from home can do all of these things and AI is going to eventually be able to create apps without app developers. Mm-hmm. And so it's no wonder that you're seeing Google and, and all of these other places um, retrenching thousands of, of, of people around the world because it's saturated. And, and AI is really going to affect many of those because it can do the thinking that those people do and a lot quicker and cheaper. And it's happening in in. In little studies and kitchen tables around the around the world where mm-hmm. you're getting top-notch outputs from people that 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 are doing these things and so whilst it's going to be a huge part of the future i think there's there's there is a shortage of good quality artisans as we know them mm-hmm. and they will always be required because Whatever computer you or or, or Wi-Fi or five G or whatever you're putting around, somebody's got to go along and link that all up to wiring. Somebody's got to build the towers. Somebody's got to go and install those things. Somebody's got to maintain them. Somebody, 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 and those are all the artisans.
1: Wow, well, super, super, super exciting. But you mentioned working from home, and that takes me a little bit back to you are not working um, on a continuous basis in the big cities. You are living in Peru, in the free state. How does that influence everything that you do?
0: Well, you know, as you mentioned earlier on, I have I, I won several awards. So, as an ardent environmentalist, um, I had uh, for a while been unhappy about the fact that there was all the senseless driving around um for meetings etc with all the pollution etc that that went with that used to irk me that one had to spend in rush hour an hour from the west Rand to Sandton and have an hour's meeting or a a coffee meeting and then head off again and the the sheer waste of time the sheer um pollution it just it, it didn't make sense to me and so I was I I think one of my my has always been to carve meaningful relationships with people quite quickly because I believe that people take decisions based on how they feel Mm -hmm. about you and, and about something and it's for this reason that we buy the cars that we buy for this reason we date or we marry the people that we do it is for this reason that we live in a particular area, we can, it's, 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 we get a feel. Um, and so, you know, the ex-CEO the, the of Sarchin Saatchi made that great quote where he said, people make the big decisions based um, on, on the heart, not, not on the, not on the mind. And, and um, it's because the big decisions you make by how you feel about something, and I, I, I enjoy meeting people and getting a feel for them. I really, really enjoy people very much, and I'm always interested. I'm a good listener. I'm, a good, I'm always interested in them um, more than in them, them being finding out about me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I it's it's always an adventure to meet new people. So with you know with that being said, I. I thought, and it is important always at initial stages, to with people and to get a feel for them in the flesh, and so that they can have a feeling for you. But once the collaboration and the relationship has been established, then to me it made nonsense that one still, well, you know, let's have a meeting, you know, what what time can you be here? What time can you be here? And um, so then about a year, before COVID arrived, I got rid of my place in Johannesburg. I've, 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 for many years, had a lovely sandstone home in this beautiful rural village here, Roo, um, which is near Bethlehem and Clarence, in the Eastern Free State. And I just love the peace and quiet, but I'm very productive here as well, you know, from a business point of view. So I I dumped Joburg uh, then because I wanted I wasn't keen on the daily rat race, and um, migrated back here to my home here. Then COVID came along, and then those organisations that still were insistent on we must meet every week in the flesh, etc., suddenly had to meet online.
1: Uh-huh. And
0: I've just been very, I've just been very fortunate in that they've primarily all remained online for the vast majority of meetings. It's so easy. You know the people, you get online, you get to your business. The moment your business, your meeting's finished, you can get onto the action points that came from that business, et cetera, as opposed to talking nonsense for 45 minutes afterwards and then an hour's drive away for everybody or people flying in and out. It's it's just made it so easy to work with, with people from all over the country um, and even from abroad, you know, because we can do. We, we also raise funds from abroad. And um, apart from the timeframes, it's absolutely fantastic to, to do much of my work online. And that allows me to have a quality of life here um, in my homeland.
1: Mm, I can imagine. And a lot of sustainable living, better living that is going into it.
0: Hundred percent. Because honestly, I've I've got I've got a very productive orchard here. I uh-huh. grow some of my own vegetables, but um, some of my neighbours have got extensive vegetable gardens. The chickens are grown, and
1: uh-huh.
0: the game farms um, in our vicinity, where one can buy venison, um, we get fresh organic eggs, etc. Naturally, uh, and you know, nowadays you don't have to be just to see how many people are getting cancer, etc. It's just running rampant. And you. the problem is um, that so many very, very harmful pesticides and herbicides are being used on crops and that, in you know, around the world. But especially in Africa where we don't have some of the strict regulations that the EU has of Ban so many of these things so you get you get a lot of your you know um, have societies that are living on bread and up and cereals and all of these grain products that are not primarily good for us anyway and then when they come laden with these pesticides and herbicides uh, then your vegetables and and all your grains are laced with all these 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 poisons and and then added to that, you know, you get a mass production for eggs and chickens and cows, etc. in the feed. All the steroids and hormones that are fed to them to get quick, massive growth. But it all plays out in the consumer, you know, you and I eating this stuff. And I think that that has been a great investment in my personal health, um, whereby I'm able to to eat very easily a lot of stuff organically because that is what people are producing around here. And that's just an added benefit. And, but it's a major benefit because I want to try and be as healthy as I possibly can for as long as I possibly can. I think it's a, a basic human desire, isn't
1: it? Mm-hmm. It is. But unfortunately, living in the city, it's not always possible. So hats off to you no, for making a- that move.
0: And, and And you know, you know crystalla in when I was living in Germany, it astounded me how green they were, mm. and you know that in even in blocks of flats, they used to have what they' call the sort of the the door the door size garden, it's literally the size of an ordinary door in your house, mm. and they would have this platform on their little balcony and their flats, and on that little platform they would be growing tomatoes and and lettuce and carrots and kale and broccoli and feeding themselves from that little thing and i've I've often thought to myself i wish that more south africans would take a part of their garden if they've got one Mm. um, and and turn it from english country garden into keep one section that's pretty and then have an effective little vegetable garden going the other half of your lawn it's so easy to do you can make it very attractive and you can cut the cost of living by feeding yourself and you and your family eat healthy but we don't have that culture Mm. um in our country really we really don't no and it's and that's easy to do
1: but that is also i think we've spoken about artisans and the um, communication that needs to go into developing more people into artisans. But I think there's a bigger challenge to for people to realize that they need to live more sustainable and they need to invest in their vegetable gardens. And as you say, it's possible even if you live in a flat to grow your own veggies, um, even if it's just a bit of kale and spinach and lettuce.
0: 100% I've seen it with my own eyes that Germany was full of people in high-rise buildings, each with their balcony garden. And, um, and you know, the cost, it should be an imperative nowadays. It's ridiculous to go and pay for, for these mass-produced vegetables and things like that at a hell of a cost mm-hmm. when you could take a quarter of your garden at your townhouse or whatever it is and turn that into a productive little vegetable garden. And not only that, it's really nice to to finish your day or to start your morning or whatever it is to just potter around that. And I promise you, to anybody listening, when you're eating your own stuff, hell, it's a lovely feeling.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, so we definitely need to get that message out there. But Richard, I assume that Everything is going so great in your life that you almost never have your down moments where you have to recollect yourself that only happens to other people, not to you
0: <laughs> no, you you'd be surprised um uh you know my down moments are generally very often brought about um by other people's plights if that makes sense mm-hmm. i um you know i um I, I've I've got I have a deep empathy and compassion for people that that are close to me and that I know um, have lost their jobs or they've been retrenched and you know especially when COVID came along because then I was very very busy albeit online helping organisations dealing with the communications around putting their workforces on short time or cutting salaries or having to retrench whole swathes of them. And sometimes they were with companies that I knew well, and I knew many of the staff affected. Or you have neighbors um, who suddenly um, have lost, the breadwinner's lost his job or her job, or their kids have lost their jobs or whatever it is. And that's been my biggest, that's been the biggest thing I've had to deal with in my life is trying to switch off my empathy and compassion for them um when that happens, and I'd go to bed worrying, oh my goodness, what is that person going to do now? Who do I know that might be able to help them um uh, do I know of anywhere where there's a position open, and it drives me to distraction because their situation worries me, has worried me so much but um i'm you know i've I've been able to I've been able to ring fence it a lot better over the last two years, I suppose. Um, so I've become stronger in that way because if you're down, I realize I'm not at my best. And so it's, it doesn't, su- doesn't serve anybody, even the people I'm trying to help, if I'm feeling down.
1: Definitely not. But if you're feeling down, what is the fun and exciting ways that you use to regroup, refocus and rejuvenate?
0: Um, I love walking my dogs. Um, I love going to the gym. I always love going to the gym. Do you
1: have a gym in Um, Poirou?
0: No, I don't have to drive (laughs) to Bethlehem two or three times a week. Okay. (laughs) But I'm very fortunate to have a lovely cycling group, and we cycle here locally um, through the countryside three times a week. So physical exercise helps me. Uh, Spending time walking my dogs um, helps me. I really enjoy introspection. Um, uh, there's nothing like just sitting in the sun on, on my stoop and thinking about life generally. And, and I find good friends um, are a great, great medicine. You know, I remember uh, the book, The Prophet, where the student said, Master, tell me about friendship. And he said, I'll tell you two things about friendship. Number one, the road to the house of a friend is never far. And number two, seek out your friends when you've got time to live, not time to kill. And that made such an impression on me because I love seeking my friends out when I've got time to live mm. and then living it. Mm. And and that enthusiasm and the distraction of it and that, um, you know, joy brings joy and, um, and positive energy grows yours. And so that's what I do. That's how I, I, I refocus and rejuvenate and um, get myself back on, on a forward track.
1: Okay. And those friends, um, would it be friends just from the Rue area or would it be from your old friends in Joburg?
0: Well, you know, the wonderful thing about um, living down here is when I do go to Johannesburg, then I invariably end up spending time with friends. And I, I often stay um, with, with good friends when I'm there. And um, and then go about my business during the day, but allows me to catch up in the evenings. But one of the lovely things about living in a place like this is that so many people want to keep coming and visiting. Yeah, so my friends from Cape Town, Cape Town and Durban and and Johannesburg and even from up in Mpumalanga, I've got a, a guest. I've got a guest cottage with some guest rooms in it and that and I'm not I don't know whether there's more paying people or friends that use it but I rally my friends around and we have sort of theme weekends or whatever and then
1: um,
0: that's that's how I keep them my friends
1: okay what about some karaoke
0: absolutely absolutely that's about the only music I do these days (laughs) (laughs) I've got a hell of a set here and if it's not been used for a bit of a, a dance, then it's been used for a karaoke evening, you know. So we have a lot of fun around it. I can tell you something. There's a lot to be said about um, people um, just relaxing and singing together and having fun. It's it's a great icebreaker. And I can tell you those that say that they can't sing, by the end of the evening, you have to pry the mic away from them. You know, because they will <laughs>
1: Sounds like a lot of fun and sound do you videotape all of that?
0: We have got some on videotape, you know, but not that the owners would ever want them seen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can imagine. Richard, quick question. If you could be twenty years old again, what would you change? Or would you want to change anything? <sighs>
0: You know, not really. You know, I remember Tuli Madoncelo when they said, what is the, the real sign of, well, how would you define a successful person? And she was sitting with this panel and they all had different takes on it. And she said, I think it's when you know when you can be content, that you're content. Mm-hmm. And so, and she she you know, she qualified it by saying that doesn't mean that then you just stop moving forward or whatever it is. It's just your spirit um, is contact. And so when you ask a question like that, I think to myself, if I had done this, then that wouldn't have happened. And if I didn't do this, then that wouldn't have happened. And I think I'm basically in a place where I I love my home. I love my domestic situation. I'm, I'm, I've, I'm fit, I'm happy, I grow my mind up with fantastic friends and and I don't know that I'd want to change any of that but if if there's something that i if I had the time that I would have possibly done more, I think i I would have liked to have been a lot more vocal about um the cruelty of people towards those that don't have a voice, such as animals, old people, and children mm. it it's something that literally freaks me out when I see cruelty to to vulnerable people or creatures. And I think that um, whilst I did a hell of a lot of work for the Wildlife and Environment Society, of which I'm so proud, and it's one of my big feel-goods about my life, mm-hmm. um, because it was all done on a, as a, on a volunteer basis, I do think that um, I would have liked to, as a youngster, have been... Much more vocal about outing people who are cruel to others, um, and um, and yeah, I just think I could have been I could have been quite a, an activist in that regard because it's I just I just think vulnerable yeah I just like to speak for those that don't have a voice. Mm,
1: mm. We definitely need more people like you. Just quickly, your <laughs> You've mentioned books and quotes, what would be your number one book that you would recommend to people out there?
0: Well, you know, I was very, very privileged to meet Stephen Covey, the late Stephen Covey, in 1994, and his Seven Habits of Highly Effective People fundamentally changed my life, because those seven habits are not only easy to remember, they're just so sensible and I use them in my strategic planning all the time, you know, that you begin with the end in mind, you put first things first, you you, you know, it's it just makes so much sense around um uh, how you how you should strategize things and and you know it uh, you know very quickly he says that we and we must understand that that we all are responsible. When something happens, we can be proactive and choose how we respond to it. And instead of just responding with offense or I'm offended about it or you become a victim or whatever it is, you rise to the occasion and you do you you do something fine and noble from that situation. And then when you know you can choose, then you begin with the end in mind. That's strategy. You know, where do you want to go? What do you want to achieve? And then when you know that, the third one is well, then what? put first things first. What's the important things I need to do? And then when you know that, you've got personal leadership. And when you've got personal leadership, then you might dare to lead other people. And that is then, then you come to the decision, let's think win-win. Can we, can we agree to communicate until we come up with a winning solution so that it's not my stuff or your stuff, but our stuff. We take the best of our thinking. And that gets rid of all the conflict and defensive behavior that some egos sometimes have. Mm -hmm. And then the next one was, if you've decided on that, then you seek first to understand and then be understood. So it's the power of listening, because I'm not threatened by how you see it, because we're just trying to get the best of how we both see things. Then it's, gee, now I want to listen to you, as opposed to just defending myself. And then when you've got that in hand, then you can synergize and collaborate, understanding that synergy is one plus one equals three plus Mm -hmm. or more. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the seventh habit, sharpen the soul, which is um, look after your mind, look after your body, look after your spirit, look after your loved ones. And you know, those seven habits have guided me absolutely and he encapsulates these into a book called "Principle-Centered Leadership" yes. by Stephen Covey, and and for me, um, you know, there's just such an emphasis uh, in the it has been in the corporate world around skills, skills, skills. You look at most adverts, you see, you know, it's, uh, it, for for recruitment, it's around skills, 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 mm. and very little around character and you know he says in order to be fully trustworthy you have to be able to, you have to be, in in order to be trusted you have to be trustworthy in competence and character. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And, And when you've got, I just see in the corporate world so many people that are competent but don't have character. And so there's, you know, there's no principles, there's no integrity. There's, um, they, they, there's unfairness, there's impatience, there's inconsistencies, all those things that make your character. And and so if there was one book, it's not about, you know, most people kind of know um, the business that they're wanting to do and how you do that business and who their competitors are, etc. Et those are quite fundamental, but they don't under, understand the power that's unleashed when you are principle-centered and you can lead a team that is principle-centered and that becomes vital and central to the culture of your organization, uh, because it's, it's the people and it's the way they behave and it's the way they feel about it that affects your stakeholders, that are your investors, that are your staff, that are your suppliers, that are your customers, etc. If you're not a principle-led organization, um, the truth comes out eventually, and you never ever aspire to the heights that you can aspire to. So, I would definitely say my number one recommended book would be Principle Centered Leadership by mm. Stephen.
1: But it sounds like you can write your own book on principles and character.
0: Well, you know, he's been so central because he changed my life so fundamentally. He's been so central to everything I've spoken, I've developed. Uh such a plethora of information and i do a lot of leadership development and coaching um, on these very things uh, because it's dearly dearly needed in the workplace Mm. Um, and i think we get badly affected by you know watching so many movies about the american workplace etc where it's it's so shoddy as far as i'm concerned all this bumping and talking at people and talking people down and, and you know, just, it's so ruthless. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we think that this is how it's meant to be. And I've come across so many of them in this country too. And I just sit there with pity because I think, my goodness, you could be so much further mm. than you actually are if you just realized mm. that um, to be a principled, centered person is, um, it's like gold. And people are naturally attracted to you. When you're not principal centered, the first thing that happens is you lose your top talent because they don't want to work in a workplace um, where that isn't the case. Mm. If they they top talent, they've got choices, they go to where they are, um, in ensconced in that sort of environment. And and so many of these smart Alex don't realize that, you know. So uh
1: uh-huh. it's a pity. Pretty- Absolutely. But speaking of all these things, um, what would be your metaphorical mountains that you still want to climb within the next three to five years?
0: Oh, um, well, look, from a practical point of view, I'm still very determined to um, grow my annuity incomes. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've got various of those in place, and they, they'll be good if they, con- they can continue sort of in perpetuity for the rest of my life, because it means you're not really dipping into your retirement savings, etc. So I think I'm fortunate in what I do, in that I'll be able for for many years still to be able to continue to grow that. So from a sort of a, a financial point of view, that would be, um, metaphorical mountain would be to to continue to grow my annuity incomes. Um, I definitely want to position the Artisan Training Foundation as a major player in the development of quality skills in in Southern Africa. Um, So that continues as a mountain, albeit a very enjoyable mountain that I'm climbing. And um, I suppose I'm a great believer in... That things change when millions of people do millions of little things, and and I would like to. I've got my world that I live in. Uh, I, we each of us have has our little worlds made up of the people we know and the things that we love and the places we go to, etc. And just to make a to make a difference in my world and hope that a good difference in my world and hope that millions of other people around me are thinking the same way and then where where the vectors are that that synergy will just create a a new way in our country. I think we're so often presented with situations that are dire by politicians and you know politicians politic and that means rallying around people around the way they see things and it's always divisive Mm -hmm. and I, I always didn't I always get furious when I see how good people are led astray by by people with political motives and and I think that just more and more of us need to be making a difference in our own worlds and 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 and, and moving on on concepts of hope and empathy and understanding and um, doing more than just for ourselves and in that way um, I can't control what's going on in the rest of the world but I can certainly make a difference in my world and and that continues as a as a mountain that um, puts your hiking beats on boots on every day for you. So that's what they would be.
1: Wow, well, wow, well, that is so powerful. But you've mentioned South Africa and I can't help to wonder you've been living and working in Germany for a long time. Would you ever want to leave South Africa to go back to Germany or any other place in the world?
0: You know, I, when I could, I used to think so. Um, I, I, I could have stayed. Um, and of course you worry about security and personal safety and things like that. But um, it's, it's how it is. And I think that the world's got some major, major things that that it's facing. All sorts of countries that I used to possibly consider, but no longer. I, I, I like it here, right here, right here today. I'm happy and I'm content.
1: Well, that is very, very good to hear. And um, especially if I think of all the work that you still need to do in all the different aspects that you're involved in, sustainable living, um, making a change in people's character. But I think most importantly, changing the way the artisan industry operates and grows in South Africa. I think there is still lots of work for you to do
0: there's a hell of a lot of work um, for me and and people like me to do and and it's a it's in the players are generally very 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 nice people you know the funders and and the corporates and that that are involved I'm I just I get on so well with all of them and and um, it's it's a good place to be and it's it's a really vibrant place that's it's lovely to do something as a job which is which which mission is so needed and is so valuable and and then the cherry on the top that just changes people's lives forever
1: okay would that be your party message
0: yes uh, my personal principle um, that i got also from stephen covey Um, And I think it just changes everything if you apply it in every situation, and that is do the right thing and then do things right.